Months passed. Then one day there was a funny postcard with a picture of an outdoor restaurant. No salutation, no signature, and said, in a very pretty garden, I ate lunch without you today at a wobbly table with a thin rose crawling bent and unbalanced out of a tiny vase. I ate an egg and didn't think about you. I stayed in a little hotel for a while, an adorable hotel, whitewashed walls, fruit, a few plants, and that was about it. Except that I kept having, guess what, memories. Not particularly painful memories, but one day I found myself brooding about an article I'd seen that had some interesting pictures that had accompanied it. I was thinking particularly of two specific pictures of the very nice actor who was the subject of the article, and one of them showed him hugging his wife, and then the other one showed him in a scene from a movie, and he was hugging the actress who was playing his wife in the movie. And he looked exactly the same in both pictures. And at the time I'd read the article, I'd said to myself, My God, he's a liar. He's lying. He's lying in one of these pictures at least. But now, as I thought about it, I suddenly thought, Wait a minute. No, he's not lying. He's not lying. He's not lying because he's not pretending to be the same person in both pictures. Jesus Christ, that actor wasn't lying. I'm the one who's lying all day long because all day long I am pretending to be the same person. The same person I was yesterday, the same person I was last week, What's that all about? And why do I do it? What is the point? Why am I struggling every day to learn my lines, to once again impersonate this, this awful character, this terrible character whom I somehow believe I've been chosen to play, this terrible character whose particular characteristics are impossible to remember? I feel exactly the way a criminal must feel, trying so hard every day to stick to the story he was telling yesterday. The alibis, the untrue facts, the interconnected details. It can't be done. You can't remember it all. So why do I keep trying to pretend to be the same, when in fact my body is simply a shell? waiting to be filled by one person and then another. After I'd stayed in the hotel for several weeks, I developed the habit of walking in the park. And one day, in the middle of the park, I was standing at a lemonade stand drinking lemonade, and I happened to meet a very sweet girl. She was with some friends, but she was standing apart from them, and... I don't know why, I felt I'd feel comfortable talking to her, so I just went up to her and I started talking, and she responded in a quiet little voice. Her little pink mouth was so small, it was just like a tiny little mouse mouth, really. Her little skirt like a bit of foam from the sea, 
or shoes like miniature containers for sewing equipment. We talked for a while, and her friends then said they were going to leave. But she stayed behind, and we kept on talking. She told me her bracelets were a gift from a friend, a girl who died in some freak accident involving a horse. The horse crashed into a wall, she said. I went out for a while with the lemonade stand girl. I had an affair with her, you see. Would you like to know the subtle approach I used to lure her into it? Well, we were standing there at the lemonade stand, and it was getting dark. And I looked at her very directly, and I said, Would you like to have an affair with me? Wasn't that clever? She responded by touching me a little bit crudely. Then she introduced herself. Her name was Peg, and we went to her apartment. I often cried in bed when Peg and I made love, because I felt like a lamb who was feeding on grass, and folk tales tell us that happy lambs quite often cry. Holding me in her arms, Peg was limitlessly kind. Her goodness was sort of like an ocean, really, and I was free to swim in it, and I swam and felt free. You know, I'd always wondered, how can people say that they're moved by nature? How could that be possible when the tree, the flower, have really no meaning... No one made them, no one intended anything in particular by them. So how can people say that they mean something? Is that not like the belief of someone insane who thinks the raindrops on the window are bringing him a message? No, not at all. Lying next to Peg, I saw I'd been wrong. It was easy now just to look at her shoulder, her neck, her cheek, and receive a kind of direct communication, as if her body were literally speaking to mine, as if I was able to hear things now, a stone talking or a tree stump at night or the moon. Anyway, things didn't work out with Peg. She got tired of me. Maybe my problem was just having always been very unhappy. You know, unhappiness being a kind of cold sort of marshland in which other emotions just refused to grow. One day, lying on a beach after swimming, our teeth chattering, her goose-bumped skin pressed close against mine, she said, Jack, I love you. And I thought, what does she mean? Is she talking about me? My name rang so oddly in my ears. Each night, alone in the house with Father, I'd go to bed late. I'd fall asleep instantly, as if I'd been clubbed. Then three hours later, I'd wake up again. 
sweaty, terrified, my heart pounding. Lying in my bathtub in the dark, I'd twist back and forth under the little stream of water, as if an invisible person were whipping me brutally. Mustn't touch myself, I'd think. That would be bad, the wrong direction. All father's friends were putting pressure on me, as if I were the one who had all the answers somehow, as if I could explain what was going on. Why? Why me? I'd wait and wait. Then dawn would come, and the distant sound of violence, that vague, low roaring and groaning, snapping of guns would finally grow quiet or almost quiet that heartsick feeling didn't go away the oppression the awfulness but yes sure it was soothing it was comforting to feel the sweetness of the morning air to hear the birds the insects Every once in a while, I'd still sometimes throw on some earrings and a dress and go to a party at some embassy or other to chat with the bureaucrats, the wives, the rising young couples. But I learned nothing, really nothing, beyond the obvious fact that half the high officials were in their 20s now. After a while, I just concluded there wasn't any hope. An important insight. There'd be no happiness in my own life, nor would peace be won in our unlucky land. The government was knocking people's teeth out, sure. That's what they felt they had to do. So, when one walked down the street... One might just possibly trip over a few teeth, and that might be annoying. But could there possibly be anything that I myself could still hope to achieve in the midst of this weird old world of ours? Well, perhaps there could be something. Perhaps I could somehow learn how to pass more easily from one moment to the next, the way the monkey, our ancestor, shifts so easily along from branch to branch as he follows the high road through the forest at night. Let me learn how to repose in the quiet shade of a nice square of chocolate, a nice slice of cake. A delicious cup of tea isn't perhaps that hard to come by. The trick to be learned is just not to think of other things while you drink it. The radio broadcast some absurd message. There were to be some new people in high positions, some new policies. All very vague, but from the tone that you knew it was going to be bad. Everyone was talking on the telephone all day, and most of the old friends, the ones who were left, 
wanted to come over to the house. We knew we wanted to be together. Father got inspired, decided to cook. And so that afternoon around five, they all came, shambling through the courtyard into the garden to stand once again under the stiff little trees with their frozen pots. Mary was there, and Herbert, and Arthur, and Bob, and Sam. Sam brought a jar of Indian chutney, which made a nice compliment to Father's Mead. As dusk fell in the garden, we could hear these really extraordinary sounds. You know, the boom of explosions and very loud shots. We knew they were nearer than they'd ever been before. Still, we sat at the garden table or strolled near it, eating the meal that Father had prepared. The odor of the flowers was peculiarly strong, as if their last drops of perfume were being squeezed into the air in the knowledge that no one would be able to smell them later. No one ate much, but we all ate something. Finally, as the sounds of shooting got louder, we all drifted inside. It was pure mindless instinct. A light, almost invisible drizzle had begun, so we pretended to ourselves that we were simply going inside to keep dry. There were ominous, silent flashes, a bluish tint to the air, and the dusk deepened. Inside, we stood in the kitchen, moving unnaturally slowly and quietly, no one standing too close to anyone else. Listen, Bob said. We all listened, and we heard birds approaching, flapping, flapping, an almost equestrian sound, sort of like the proverbial thunder of hooves. Well, Father said, I'm not exactly known as a superstitious man. And the flapping got a notch louder. But the appearance at such a moment of such an enormous cloud of birds. And then no one spoke for a long time. Each one just shifting his weight from foot to foot in his own little circle. I suddenly felt a terrible cramp in my stomach, and I bent over, and then I opened my mouth, and light seemed to pour out of it onto the ground. I could feel as if it were happening to me. The penis of every man in the room slowly starting to rise. I was crouched over, close to the floor, surrounded by a forest of men, 
each with a branch at the groin sticking sharply up. And then, with a crack, the rain was suddenly beating down on the garden, rattling wildly on the windows. And after a little time, through the roar of the rain, I heard the sound of breaking glass, as if bottles were being thrown and broken. And then the grinding gears of a truck pulling up, stopping in the driveway, just where the milkman's truck always used to stop. Would they ring the bell like the milkman used to do to give us the bill? We drifted into the living room. Arthur sat in a chair. So did Bob, Mary. And their bodies slowly curled up in the chairs. Their expressions really were just of waiting, a little bit puzzled, like patients sitting in their pajamas in hospitals. Then there were sounds of commotion in the garden, and at first no one even went to the window to find out what was happening. I finally did, though, and in the darkness and rain, the light from the house picked out a few spots I could see on the lawn. A patch of flowers, some dishes, food. I saw a blur of men moving quickly around. Then, by the table where we'd all had our meal, I saw a dead person lying. A young man, his skull had been crushed. He lay in the mud, face downward, the rain pouring over him, the inside of his head washing out onto the lawn. As a child, I'd always read about biting down on cyanide capsules, and I'd imagined the faint taste of the gelatin of the capsules, or the painful, frightening bits of glass, if the capsules were of glass. And I actually wondered, as all this happened, if such things as cyanide capsules existed anymore. I thought of the weight, the heaviness of Jack as he lay on top of me. And then it was almost funny, simply because it was so exactly like what one had always imagined. They knocked on the door. So yes, we landed exactly where we knew we would land like parachutists, like the last pieces of a puzzle. We floated down into the space that had been waiting. And once it was happening, it seemed right. And all the times we'd prayed, God, don't let it happen, seemed far away. I excused myself went upstairs to the toilet and vomited. Then I brushed my teeth, 
came back downstairs. And I was more or less fine, shivering a bit as we went out into the rain, but still perfectly able to walk to the truck. God, I'd spent a lifetime being afraid of being locked in a cell, of being slapped in the face, of being punched, of being watched by someone while I sat on the toilet. In one second, it all dropped away. I let go of it in a second, like opening a fist, letting a bird out of a cage, not the sound of a door closing. It felt like the sound of a door opening, a girl whom someone has locked in her room, then the sound of her footsteps clattering as she bursts out and runs outside. Judy and Howard and their friends went to prison. (laughs) It seems fantastic to say that. I never thought I'd be saying that sentence about people I knew. They went to prison. (laughs) And it was a hard time. And a long time. Five years. Arthur and Bob, well, they died fairly soon. You know, if there was a draft coming through a window in a restaurant, it was too much for Arthur. So I suppose you can imagine that the famously cold, famously damp climate of a rather famous local prison didn't agree with him at all, or with Bob either. They shriveled up like little mice and died. Mary, a bit hardier, lived three years, and Herbert, four. Then finally Sam died, and, well, by the end of the five years, only two of the old gang were there to be released. Judy, by decades the youngest, and, can it be true? Guess quick before I tell you, yes, in fact, the other one was that terribly delicate, terribly infirm old man, Howard. (laughs) Oh, God, what a surprise. Strangely, of course, by the time they got out, although Howard naturally found himself in the best of health, Judy was sick with something or other. One of those illnesses that keeps going away and then coming back. You've been listening to The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn. I'm Andre Gregory, and I directed the production. The actors were Wallace Shawn as Jack, Deborah Eisenberg as Judy, and Larry Pine as Howard. Bruce Odland was the engineer, composer, designer, editor, and podcast director. 
Mastering was by Mark Fuller. The original producers were Celeste Barthos and Scott Rudin. Jennifer Tipton was the co-creator. These podcasts were produced by Mac Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon Productions.